Hello, and welcome to St. Paul's Growing Together, a Bible study podcast resource for the St. Paul's Lutheran Church and School in Bourbonnet, Illinois. Because we believe that studying God's Word is important, and that through our time together in God's Word, we grow in our faith in Jesus and our love for one another, we are offering you a chance to come grow with us through listening in on our Bible studies. We now join a Bible class on the Book of Acts, taught by our associate pastor, Mike Hanel. All right, we're gonna kick things off here. We got uh, a lot of a lot of stuff. We're in a section of Acts where there's just a lot going on in all of the sections, and it's it's really difficult to kind of. Uh, before I like to get kind of whole stories or segments, but what we're getting into is Paul, Saul, his first missionary journey with Barnabas, and it it goes on for quite a little bit. It's going to be in chapter 13. That's where it begins, but then it goes through all of chapter 13 and 14, and then 15. Uh, it's his So the missionary journey is 13 and 14, and then 15 is kind of um, an issue that becomes important again after the missionary journey, which is how is the gospel being presented, especially to Gentiles? Like I said, we, we kind of already solved this problem, we thought, with Peter and Cornelius, and he went back to Jerusalem, and it seemed like once they heard from Peter and understood that everybody was okay with this, but it seems that especially after Paul and Barnabas's missionary journey and Barnabas and Paul being very explicit on what they're doing, that they are, yes, going to Jews first with the gospel, but then making no apologies about it. They're going to the Gentiles with the gospel and the message is the same. I mean, they may talk about it in slightly different language, but the fact that the message is still that Jesus is is our salvation and that we are saved by faith in him as opposed to the message being that to Jews but to Gentiles okay first you need to become a Jew and then here's the hope and here's the promise that we have that's not what what Paul does he brings the same message of salvation by grace uh, through faith to both Jew and Gentile and this there's conflict with this, especially from the, the Jews. And so they're going to go back to Jerusalem in Acts 15 and talk about this and try to solve it once and for all. Um, so because we're still kind of gearing up to the missionary journey, we're doing a little bit of work in chapter 12 that we didn't get to last time. Um, I didn't feel that I could cover the entire missionary journey in one class, which would have been a nice segment, just because there's there's so much going on. So uh, we'll at least cover chapter 12, and we may get a little bit of 13 today, depending on how things go. But at the end of the class last time, I, I had this handout. I'm sorry I didn't bring the same handout with me this time, um, even though it's in my office. It's that on the Herodians, 
just to kind of catch up a little bit because we're in that time of the year where Herod's keep popping up. In our gospel reading in church today, we hear about John the Baptist being in prison and sending his disciples um, to Jesus. And this is when John the baptizer, Baptist, is imprisoned by Herod Antipas, okay? And then we also, as we're coming to Jesus's birth, uh, just after uh, Christmas is when the, the reading in the church comes up of the Magi coming and they come to Herod, which is Herod the Great, Herod Antipas's father. And Herod the Great is kind of the megalomaniac that wants to kill all of the infants in order to kill this king that the Magi have said is born in Bethlehem. And then in our section here, uh, Acts 12, verse 1, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. That now is Herod Agrippa. This is the nephew of Herod Antipas, the grandson of Herod the Great. And the interesting thing about all of this is that these are all, I think we would say, very powerful men. They ruled lands, a lot of territory, a lot of people. They had a lot of power. It's true that they were under the auspices of the Roman government, so they were not completely of their own authority. They had to answer to a higher authority. They were given authority by the Roman Senate. So as much as they might praise themselves as kings, um, that's not really true. They were far enough away from Rome that, you know, they don't have the Roman government sort of leaning over them all the time. And so they do have some flexibility. But as somebody serving on behalf of the Roman government, you could always um, at any time lose that office. They could take that office away from you. And once you have lost that office, you could also be prosecuted. So if you were incredibly unjust or, you know, you fleeced the people illegally, you um, embezzled some money, you might have to answer after that. So like I said, there's, there is some checks and balances, but it's also true that they were quite a distance away. And who would be coming against them? Well, it would be probably the Jews. That, that's predominantly the people that they ruled. And for a Jew to win that kind of a case with the Roman government, when by and large the Roman government and Jews didn't, uh, didn't always get along, there's a episode where the uh, Caesar Claudius uh, he expels all of the Jews from Rome. He had enough of them. There's going to be other instances, you know, later, especially of, of Nero. And he persecutes Christians, also persecuting Jews again. At that point in time, if you're not into the faith, what's the difference between a Jew and a Christian? They both worship one God which we, a polytheistic nation, people, culture, recognize as, as foolishness. They're, they're a people that we don't understand. So that's the Herod that we're talking about here. They have this power and authority, but they also, there's some kind of, you know, rule of law. They're not just out on their own, but sometimes they do things that are rather questionable. 
So what's the rather questionable thing that happens here? Herod the king, he lays violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Again, specifically, it seems targeting not Jews, but the church. These first disciples of Jesus, which shows that they're a distinct group, they're identifiable, they're numerous. This is kind of going back to what Saul did. There's persecution. We talked about how there was peace for a while after Saul is converted, that there was peace and the gospel sort of went out pretty freely. And now we're back to a time of persecution, this time done by the the head of the government. And it's pretty serious. It says in verse two, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Um, So this is... James, the son of Zebedee, James and John, two brothers, and uh, John is the one who ends up living for a really long time. He faces um, uh, persecution when he's sent to that island of Patmos, uh, imprisoned there, and, you know, no doubt tortured and whatnot, has that great revelation from God and sends that out to the church that even in the midst of greater persecution that the Christians need to know that that God will have his vengeance, that God is ultimately in control, that Jesus is the ultimate Lord and King of everything. That John, his brother James. You might also remember an episode when Jesus uh, is coming kind of to the end of his ministry and the brothers James and John come to Jesus and they're like, can I sit at your your left or your right? You know, can we be kind of the your close second in command? Can we can we be those? And Jesus talks about you know it's not mine to give. And can you um, drink the cup that I'm gonna drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm gonna be baptized? And they're like, oh yeah, sure, we can do that. Um, again, not really knowing entirely what they're saying. Um, and Jesus says, yeah, you're right, you, you will. But uh, again, to, to talk about who's at my right or left, that's, that's not something that we're doing right now. Well, here, James drinks that cup. Uh, he is baptized with that baptism. He undergoes the same kind of persecution that Jesus himself experienced um, at the hand of a Herod. It's a different Herod this time, but still the same thing. In verse 2, when it says he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, we're probably not to think that Herod's just walking around with a sword, like, yeah, you know, killing people, but he had the power and authority to sentence him to death, and he did it in the same way that that John the Baptist was beheaded. It's not literally that Herod Antipas went down to the chamber and beheaded him, but he issued the command, and so he's ultimately the one that made this happen. Now, again, this isn't necessarily a power that the Herod should have, um, especially when it probably wasn't done in a legal fashion. Um, There is a penalty, a a death penalty. When Pontius Pilate was in charge, he had to be the one to approve it, right? The the local leaders couldn't just do this. Well, here, we don't hear about a governor, uh, Pontius Pilate. He seems to be out of the picture now. We don't have a totally complete 
picture of all of the, the Roman heads of government in this area, but there are times in Judea when there was a governor, times when there was not a governor. And here it probably is one of the times when there wasn't. So could Herod legally have done this if there was a trial, even if it was a sham of a trial? Yeah, probably. So it is technically within his authority. We could question whether it was done properly. It probably wasn't, but that's, that's on the books. The question is, why now? Where, where did this person, there was peace, right? Why does Herod Agrippa all of a sudden turn to going after the church? And, and killing James. And we're going to talk next about after James, he's going to go after Peter. So where do you think this comes from? Why, why peace and now persecution again? Any thoughts, theories? Luke doesn't specifically tell us, so we can do a little bit of conjecture. Yeah, I, I think that's implicit in the story so far, that as the growth of Christian ha uh, Christianity happens, um, you know, some of the synagogues, they might be depopulating, or a whole synagogue might be converting into a Jewish, uh, sorry, a Christian center, even though we know that, that Christians, they sort of met wherever. They would meet in people's homes. They didn't necessarily have to meet in a synagogue, but if that was their practice, yeah. And as they're converting, maybe, you know how money speaks, maybe there are fewer people to support the, the Jewish um, worship, whether it's a synagogue or money that's going to Jerusalem itself, and that increases tensions, and people are saying, well, you know, what can we do? Well, everything was better before these Christians came along, and, and so, yeah, I, I, think, I think growth of Christianity is one of the major drivers. That the Jews were okay with Herod. Yes. And so I think that's probably the second thing. And we'll look at a little bit of evidence for that. Um, because it's right, well, it's right there in verse three. And when he, that is Herod, saw that it, that is the fact that he killed James, pleased the, the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Remember Herod's kind of unique situation. He's the king of the Jews, but he himself is not really Jewish. Um, kind of, you know, half-blood. He comes from the people of Edom, Jacob and Esau. Remember, they split apart, but um, basically throughout the history, there's a lot of rivalry and contention. Uh, it's not that the Edomites did not believe in the one God and worship him. It's just that there was always this tension and conflict. They could have been as faithful or un unfaithful, unfaithful as the people of Judah and Israel themselves were. We know throughout their history, they didn't always worship the one true God. They turned aside to idolatry. But the Herods always seem to kind of be aware that they have to kind of prove themselves or ingratiate themselves among the Jews. Herod the Great, Grandpa did it by putting up that grand facade on the temple in Jerusalem. Again, yes, he had to tax the people in order to do it, but 
even Jesus' own disciples, as they were walking in the temple area on Holy Week, couldn't help but say, wow, this place is so awesome. Like, it is, it is beautiful, it is grand, it is majestic. Well, Herod the Great is the one that made that happen. Um, and so the people, yeah, they don't really like Herod, but they're, they're able to put up with some of that. And Herod Agrippa here is, I think, dealing with the same thing. He realizes that his power is not from Christians. It's, it's from Jews. He's king of the Jews, not king of the Christians. And so he's willing to hurt the Christians because the Jews really liked that. That gained favor for him. So there could have been a political move there as well. What that tells us, though, is Herod, for all his power and strength and might, he's actually in a pretty weak position, right? This is somebody who's afraid does. They do this out of fear. They're trying to consolidate their power. They're trying to shore it up. And he realizes that the tide is kind of changing here. So what can I do to make sure that my rule is, is powerful, that things stay under control? Again, there's always this problem of if there's is if there's fighting among the, the Jews because of the Christians and it doesn't seem like Herod is keeping peace in the land, he's not going to stay in power for very long because the Romans aren't going to mess around. They want peace in their empire. And so if Herod can't keep the peace, they'll find somebody else to keep the peace. So the powers of this world here, you might read it and say, wow, they're so powerful because they're putting to death members of the church. They're killing James, who is a pretty important one, an apostle. They're really powerful. This persecution is not, though, a sign of their power. It's going to be a symptom of their weakness. And as the story goes on here in chapter 12, we find out exactly how weak this Herod is. Okay. So he now is after Peter. That's verse 3. And we find out this was during the days of the unleavened bread. So this is in the early spring, right? This is our time of Easter, uh, follows kind of the Jewish calendar. And Passover, this is all happening at the same time. But it also, you can't help but be reminded of a trial during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. What does that remind you of? Jesus? Yeah, that Jesus also was, you know, attacked and ultimately killed during this same time period. You know, it could be just that eerie coincidence. Um, It could be that Herod did not usually probably stay in Jerusalem itself. He would have been up in Caesarea on the coast. That was where the the Roman capital was. But he would come to Jerusalem for great events such as Passover, um, you know, to be seen and to, you know, just make sure everything is going accordingly. And it could be here, as all of the, the people are gathering in Jerusalem, that he kind of sensed what was going on and tried to seize the moment. So, 
it's a coincidence maybe that this is all happening during the same time. It could be, though, that he is trying to make a statement. He knows about Jesus. He knows why the Christians are here. Um, and so, just like I put to death, well, not he, his uncle put to death or had a hand in putting to death Jesus, let's, let's rub some salt in the wounds, right? You, you Christians will we'll take down some of your leaders during the same time just to show you that you need to step in line and follow our rule and my authority. So during the days of the unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. Um, although there's, again, not a lot of evidence showing what the normal practice was of arresting somebody, I think four squads of soldiers is overkill. Again, you can tell the fear. Like Herod thinks that, okay, they're going to try to break in. They're going to try to, Peter's going to try to escape or something like that. So four squads of soldiers, this is, this is a lot. But he wants to make sure that, that Peter is safe um, because he's intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So the unleavened bread, this feast is happening. Uh, the Passover would be, you know, that final day. Of, of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, he's going to not kill Peter or have the trial during that holiday, but just after. Um, this is contrary to what happens with Jesus because they just, they wanted to get Jesus dead as quickly as possible. So even though they shouldn't have been, you know, having this trial, they rush it through in the middle of the night just to make sure that he would be dead before um, that time of, of the, the slaughtering of the lamb and the beginning of Passover itself, that high Sabbath. And then that's why on Saturday, Jesus was just there in the tomb. His body was there in the tomb because his disciples, even though they wanted to attend to his body and prepare it for burial, they couldn't do that because it was that Sabbath. It was that Passover. And they're, so they're supposed to rest and not do any work. But then early Sunday morning at sunrise, Sabbath is over, they can get out there. All right, so we have Peter, he's in prison over Passover, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. They see what's going on, they know what's going on, and they are praying for him. What do you think their prayers sound like? Get him out of prison. Break him. Break him out. Rescue him. Yep. I think that's that's what we predominantly are probably gonna gonna say. Um, I also am thinking though of you know how how much are these Christians learning? And as Jesus is in the garden before he is put in prison and going to be killed, he knows all of this is going to happen. What was his prayer for? Bust me out, God. Get me out of this. Yeah, okay. I know what's going to happen. So if, if you can take this cup away, if I don't have to go through this with this, that'd be good. But if this is your will, Lord, then thy will be done. The Lord's prayer, right? And 
we're left to kind of wonder, you know, what are these disciples praying about? What is the church praying about for him? Is it just get him out at all costs? Or, boy, we don't, we don't know. James was already killed. Is Peter going to be the next? If so, well, help us, Lord. Thy will be done. This is going to hurt us, it seems, but thy will be done. We're, we're ready. We'll, we'll take whatever. Maybe their prayers were all of the above. You know, some of them were, <laughs> we got to pray to get him out. We got to ask God to, to break down those doors, to, to knock out those guards, whatever. Um, others are like, maybe, maybe it's, this is God's call to Peter. We, we don't know. But anyways, while they're praying, what's Herod going to do? He was about to bring him out. On that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. Sentries before the doors were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. So, it's the night before the Sabbath is ending. You're Peter. You're in prison. You're bound in chains, probably hands and feet, right? To two guards next to you. When the sun rises, you know this is it. You're going to be put to death. What's going on in your mind? Yeah, yeah. You, how you'd be shaking, you'd be you'd be sick to your stomach, you'd be afraid. Um, our our good man Peter here is sound asleep, asleep like a baby. Um, it's it's comical because an angel appears in his cell, a light shone. It's like turning the light on in the room. Didn't say if the angel said anything, but I kind of you know. Peter, 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 get up. And it says he strikes him on the arm, right? He, he's, he's hitting him on the arm. And Peter's like, oh, you know, tomorrow. T- yeah. What? Like, again, it, I think it's a picture into the heart of faith, right? It's in God's hands. This is kind of the same thing that Stephen was like, uh, right? He, he isn't running away from those people holding out stones before him till the very end. He was simply being a witness, a martyr, a witness of the faith. And Peter, well, now's as good time of any is to take a nap, to get some sleep. It's sundown. What am I going to do? Um, that's amazing, right? Uh, again, you put yourself into that situation. We worry about all sorts of things. Things keep us up at night. And how many, how many have been killed so far? We don't know. Yeah. 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 Luke, Luke specifically tells us the story of Stephen's martyrdom and notes that James has. But when great persecution arose and people were afraid, it's because other people that we don't hear about were also being killed and dying. Yeah. This, the, and this, he already killed James. You, you know what's going to happen, but he's sleeping there. And again, that, 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 that amazing faith. 
Peter, we, you know, we go back and forth on him. He has his good qualities, his bad qualities, but here, that's, it's just amazing. And, and it's a gift from God, that, that faith that he has to trust in him. So he's trying, the angel's trying to rouse Peter, get up, get up, get up. And the chains fell off his hands and the angel says to him, well, not put, put on some clothes, man, come on. You know, he, Peter just, he's, it's sort of like when he sees Jesus um, and they're out in the lake, uh, he, he jumps out of the boat. He takes off his outer clothes because you trying to swim with all of your clothes on wouldn't, wouldn't work. And uh, it's just, it's one of those just hasty, rash things. But here he's kind of in the midst of half awake, half asleep. But the angel makes sure he's decent. Um, dress, put on your clothes, put on your sandals. And he did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Um, bring your bags. We're not, we're not coming back here. And he went out and he followed him. He didn't know what he was, he did not know what, that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Again, he's, he's in that daze of, of sleep. You know, it's also possible that before this, there were, you know, there was torture, there was other things that happened that just wore him out physically. Um, and so that could also be contributing. But again, it's, it's, it's like a dream that this is really happening. And then when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out, went one, went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. And now, Peter, you better wake up. No more sleepwalking. And he's like, wow, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So again, more signs there that Herod might have been the one orchestrating this, but he was receiving a lot of um, direction from the, the Jewish leaders, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees that we've talked about, the temple authorities while they're in Jerusalem. But now Peter's free. He's awake. He made it past all of those guards who remained asleep, did not know what was going on. And now what's he going to do? He goes to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many people were gathered together and were praying. Okay, so this particular verse tells us uh, of a person. There's a lot of Marys. It's a very popular name floating around in the Bible. So he tells us which Mary this is. It's Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. Um, we've heard about this guy once. We're going to hear about him more. He's going to accompany Paul, Saul, and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. There's going to be a little conflict that happens because of him. This is the same person that tradition is given as being the author of the gospel according to Mark. Okay, So later on in his life, he accompanies Peter. So there's close ties there. And so Mark was not a disciple that was with Jesus all of his life, but he was with Peter and heard Peter, who was that disciple who was with Jesus, tell all of these things. And so again, according to the tradition, Mark writes down the gospel that Peter had been preaching to people. Um, so he becomes famous this way. It's also 
conjectured that this house that they go to, it seems to be a pretty substantial house, um, a big house, because we're going to hear about how it has like a courtyard and everything, and, and the people were gathered there, so it had room for many people. Some people say that this might also be the upper room, the famous upper room, and there's actually two maybe two famous upper rooms. There's one that's talked about at the beginning of Acts. So when the Holy Spirit comes on them, it says that the disciples are there in Jerusalem in the upper room. What upper room? No more is really said about it. Well, the only upper room that we've heard about before that is the upper room that was prepared for Jesus to celebrate the Lord's Supper with his disciples. And so some people kind of trace the links back um, and say that it's this same one. It's conjecture. It would make a nice story if it's true, but we, we don't really know one way or the other. What we know for sure right now is that we're learning about it's the house of Mary because John Mark is become, is, he's going to become a more important person in the story. John Mark is a cousin, we learn from the book of Colossians, a cousin of Barnabas. So there's, there's a lot of connections there. But for whatever reason, Peter must have known that people, Christians, would be gathered here. This was a safe house to go to. And it just so happens, whether Peter knew it or not, that they're basically having a prayer vigil there for him. We already heard about the church being in prayer. Here's at least one group of these individuals. And again, it's happening where? In somebody's house. They don't, they don't necessarily have to go to the temple. And in fact, that probably wouldn't be advisable because of the threats uh, being made against them. Coming into a house, you're, you're off the street. Once you're in the house, it's basically a closed space. People may not know what's happening, so it's, it's a safe environment. But when he comes to this house, there's some issues. He knocks on the door, the door at the gateway, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she didn't open the gate. But she ran in and reported, Peter is standing at the gate. Okay, so you have this runaway, who's going to be like the number one most wanted fugitive. He's standing outside your door. To Rhoda, she, he's a friend, right? She's not afraid. But I'm just saying, you know, other people. And so what does Rhoda not do? She doesn't open the door and say, quick, get in before somebody sees you. She runs back to the people that are gathered in prayer and like, it's, it's Peter, it's Peter. And she's just, if they were praying for Peter's release, you, you kind of make the argument, they didn't really believe that that prayer would come true because they're just so surprised and caught off guard. Um, Rhoda's like, ah, we knew, Peter, we knew you'd be here. We were praying for you. We knew that God would come through. Instead, it's just total shock and surprise when she hears Peter's voice. It's going to get worse because... The people that she goes to who are praying don't say, of course it's Peter, we've been praying. They say, silly servant girl, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. Um, one point 
on this uh, because angels, we, there's always a lot going on there. Um, Christians don't believe this. Jews didn't believe this either, that when we die, we don't become angels. When, and it doesn't matter if you're old, if you're young, that's not what happens. There are angels and there are people. Two different creations of God, both for the glory of God, but one does not become the other, okay? They're different classes. So when people say it's his angel, um, they don't mean Peter's dead, and here now it's his angel who has come to see us. If they mean that, then they're again speaking just out of their minds and would not have believed this. It's similar to Jesus walking on water, and this is during the storm of the middle of the night, and his disciples are like, it's a ghost, okay? It's, it's a, a spirit, a phantom. Um, yes, they believe that spirits exist and, and whatnot, but Jesus doesn't turn into a spirit or, you know, anything like that. There, there's stuff going on. What is said about this verse when they say it's his angel is that we do know that, that angels are God's creation sent to glorify him and to watch over us, among other things. This is something that they do. They're always fighting these spiritual battles that we can't see with our eyes but are always ongoing. And we do have that language. We, we talk about guardian angels. Um, what's that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I want you to picture. <laughs> uh, a fat guy without his wings that's sent out on a trip of works righteousness in order to please, yeah, that's clearance, right. Um, no, I like this. I like the movie, but no. <laughs> so the other thought here, when they say it's his angel, they are thinking it's his guardian angel, which doesn't answer all of the questions because why is his guardian angel here and not guarding him? Um, but there's there's some writings that a guardian angel could like take the form, the the appearance of the person that they are they're protecting. Um, there's still a lot we don't know. The only thing that I don't want you is he died and now he's an angel. That's what they're saying. I don't think that's the case, but it's there. The point is they still don't think it's really the real Peter having been freed from prison and now right outside our door. That, that just, that thought does not enter their mind. Which, again, why not? Why would that not enter their mind? The only thing I can say is sometimes things are just too good to be true, right? And you just like, wow. Because the closest parallel here, and this fits kind of what we've been talking about, with that trial happening during the Feast of Unleavened Bread and a Herod who's going to kill uh, somebody who is of genuine faith, um, what happened when Jesus first appeared to his disciples after he rose from the dead? It was, it was 
too good to be true. It was unbelief. It was like, is it real or is it a dream? Um, we have the story of Thomas. We have the story when Jesus is there in the garden and, and you know, we, the tomb is empty, so his body must be, it, well, don't you remember he told you this? And they're still processing and like sometimes it's just, it's too good to be true. But, well, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Ro- Ro- Rhoda's doing her part, right? Yeah. And, and, well, but again, Rhoda's status is, you know, she's, she's a servant in the household, the lowliest of, of the low. Um, and she's bringing this wonderful news and people don't believe it. And that's pretty much, again, like Jesus's story when he tells the women to go tell the disciples, go tell my brothers. And again, people are like, what? How did this true? Anyways, meanwhile, he's still knocking outside the door because they're having these conversations. And hey, what's going on? Hello, Peter. He's knocking on the door. And when they opened, they saw him and they were amazed. And now motioning to them with his hand to be silent. Peter's like, I'm still a wanted criminal, guys. Um, get, they get him in the house. And uh, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. The James that they are talking about, um, it's probably not the James that was just killed, right, in the beginning here. Um, It's most likely James, who is the brother of Jesus. We're going to find out in Acts 15 especially that in Jerusalem, he sort of seems to be like the head, um, the person in charge, the one that they are looking to, um, which seems a little bit unusual because we do hear a couple of times in the Gospels about Jesus's brothers um, and Jesus sort of disowns them and says, you know, who's my mother? Who are my brothers and sisters? Those who do my father's will. Because it seems that during his life, his his own family, maybe you could make a case for Mary, but his, his brothers didn't um, really understand what was going on and, and who he was and didn't follow him. But we do hear that Jesus appears after the resurrection to this James. Uh, Paul talks about it a couple of times in his epistles, uh, again, to show, I think, the reality. There's this James in Jerusalem that, you know, he's kind of seen as somebody in charge and important. You know, how did he get to be that way? Well, Paul's saying he was one of the eyewitnesses of the resurrection, um, and he is Jesus's brother. It's not necessarily, you know, he's of the bloodline of Jesus. And so he, you know, he has to be in charge. People know the story about Jesus, that Jesus isn't just a a regular person and that kind of thing. So I don't think that's the connection. In all of this, there are some that say, but wait a second, Mary and Joseph there was only Jesus. They didn't have any other children. And when the Bible talks about Jesus's brothers and sisters, that word doesn't really mean brother, because even at best, it'd be like half brothers or, you know, something like that, not, not real genuine brothers. And that word means cousins. Um, okay, 
I, I, I'm not going to go into that debate, but the point is it's that it's, it's somebody connected to Jesus, whether you, you follow the line that this is Jesus's brother, or when you look at that word, you say cousin or relative. Okay. But that's the James that we seem to be talking about. And why does Peter want that James to know? It seems again that we, even though we haven't heard about him, he seems to have had an important position in Jerusalem. You would say, well, no, it seemed like Peter had an important position. We heard Peter talking before and how Peter and John went out and, you know, confirmed some of the things that were going on. Again, the, there's the hierarchy. It does not seem to be the first thing that the, the church was trying to do. Um, to figure out a hierarchy and who's in charge. It just sort of seemed natural that sometimes some person took the lead and at other times another person might have taken the lead and, and this and that. But I think it's safe to say that Peter's role so far has been fairly important and it appears that he's preparing to go into hiding. And so he wants James to know about this. And so even though we haven't heard about James, it could be that James has been important but now his role is going to become even more important because Peter's just going to hang low for a little bit until things blow over. But that's, that's the only reason why it seems James is picked out here. Well, why, didn't, why not tell John? Uh, why not tell Bartholomew or Thomas or any of the others? That at least is one of the explanations going there. When Peter departs and goes to another place, Luke doesn't tell us, is this another place in Jerusalem? Is it a safe house that he knows he won't be found? Did he get out of town? We don't really know. We're going to hear about Peter again in Acts 15. He's back in Jerusalem at that point. Well, at that point in time, the Herod who sought his life is going to be out of the picture, probably, uh, according to our timeline. So it was, it was safe for him to come out of hiding. He's, he's gone, though. We're not going to hear about him. Okay. Now day comes, morning, and there was no, uh, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter and we're going to hear why there was no little disturbance, but a great big one. Because after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. So the guards know their own life is on the line because the one person they were set to watch is no longer around. They don't know at this point what happened. It, it seems pretty obvious that he's freed, um, gotten away. And so it's their lives. So blood is shed no matter what, even if it's not Peter's, these, these soldiers are put to death, which does not seem out of the ordinary, but again, shows you how serious it was to be a soldier, which comes into play sometimes when people talk about Jesus dying on the cross. And there's this idea that he didn't really die. He was just sort of, you know, unconscious and really weak. And the Roman soldiers brought him off the cross and his disciples took him before like a proper examination could happen to make sure that he was really dead. And so Jesus didn't rise from the dead. He, he was taken care of and uh, never died in all of that. And so that's what went on. Well, when you're a Roman soldier, you're given a job 
and your job is to make sure that these criminals die. What's the consequence if you don't make sure your job is going to get done properly? Yeah, it's, it's probably not a minor thing that they're just going to dock you of pay because the people that they are crucifying are serious, in their eyes, serious criminals, very important people. And if you mess this up, then you're going to be in their place. So when somebody has a job to do that's this serious, they're not going to take it lightly. Um, maybe these soldiers didn't think that Peter was much of a threat. I mean, talk about overkill for how much protection there was, but nevertheless, that's what happened. He's going to die anyways. He might as well die with some honor and dignity taking his own life. Exactly. Yeah, and that would, that would only sort of further show that, that it sounds cruel and barbaric, but that's the world they lived in, uh, that kind of honor culture. Uh, last little bit. So they, uh, Herod searched uh, and he couldn't find them, and so he ordered they should be put to death. And then he went down from Judea back to Caesarea and spent time there. Again, he's in Jerusalem over the Passover, the festival, and he's tried to do his best to ingratiate himself among the Jews, in the end, it may not have really worked. And he's like, forget about this. Let me just go back to the beach and hang out with the, you know, the Roman, the Romans there. This, this is too much. And that's what he does. But the last episode of his life is a really gruesome one. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Completely unrelated thing. Uh, Tyre and Sidon is, I didn't have my map up, but it's along the coast, uh, north of Galilee, northwest of Galilee. These are uh, Phoenician cities, cities of trade, not really Jewish cities, but cities that would have been part of what he controls. And they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, somebody we don't know anything about other than his name is here. And they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. Again, remember the story of Agabus. Um, this is at the ch- tail end of chapter 11. He is a prophet and he says that there's going to be a great famine in the land. Seems we're talking about the same famine here, that they need food. And so they're trying to establish peace and get in good with King Herod again. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. Don't say that, you know. That's, that's no, don't, don't say that about a person because that's sort of um, just wishing ill will on somebody. Um, the story of pride, uh, Julius Caesar It was partially because he had been taking up so much power uh, to himself and thinking of himself as a king. And when he starts to take on all this power, people grow incredibly jealous of him. And that's when the the conspiracy comes out against him. Well, people here in the crowd are saying of Herod, he's a god, he's a god, not a man. And what Herod should have done properly Um, sort of like happens occasionally uh, in our stories when people are given too much uh, attention and glory. They're bowed down or prayed to. The people say, don't, don't pray to me. I'm just a, I'm just a person. I'm like you. But it seems Herod's like, this is kind of nice. I just got done with those Jews in Jerusalem and they're just so bothersome. And here 
ah, they're treating me like a god. This is wonderful. So the right thing to do is to, to deny that praise. It's fawning right? It's, it's not real. It's not genuine. They're just trying to get in good with the king. The king accepts it, though. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory, give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. All right? There's a lesson there. <laughs> uh, it sounds kind of crazy, this story, and you're like, worms ate him, really? Um, but it's actually corroborated. The Jewish historian Josephus talks about this very thing. Um, it seems that there was a celebration, a gathering for the emperor, Caesar Claudius. And so that was the occasion that everybody had come together. And Josephus said that Herod wore these silvery robes so that when the sun shone on him, it glistened. And, you know, so he's really trying to play this up, his power, his glory. And the people see what's going on and they're praising him. And it talks about then how, well, this says immediately he was stricken with worms. You're sort of thinking like right on the spot, like worms kind of jump into his body or whatever. Um he leaves this celebration and a few days later he dies. Uh, and because they're not medical doctors, they, they don't know exactly what it is, but like, you know, appendicitis, that sort of thing. People say, no, they were on the coast and not cooking foods properly. Like there genuinely could be worms and they get in your intestines and, you know, gross things happen. So Luke and Josephus talk about this from two very different perspectives, but no, it is, it is the same story. Luke just tells us theologically, this is why it happened. This is what went on. And again, compare this to the beginning of chapter 12. It seems like Herod's in all that power and control. He's seeking out whoever he wants to kill. And here, he has no power at all. And even when he is proclaimed a god, God shows how powerless he is. No, people that would have been in Caesarea, the, the delegates from Tyre and Sidon, just, just people who are, you know, of his court. Yeah, because this is, this is really how the system worked. Like I said, you never knew um, from one day to the next whether you would still have power and control. So you always try to be close to whoever's in power but not too close so that if they're out of power and the next guy comes who hated that guy and they get rid of all of their friends, that you're among those. You, 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 you got to try to play the field. But these people, clearly, they, they wanted something from, from Herod. They wanted food. They wanted to make sure that the peace. And so they were, you know, just fawning and giving him flattery and praise. It didn't work. Uh, 44 A.D., yeah, we know from, from Josephus. Um, I have that on the timeline. It happens in different stages. So he was first made king in 37 AD. So he's ruling for, what's that, seven years. But in steps, he's given more and more territory. So by, uh, by, 30, by 41, for three years, he has all of the territory in Judea. Um, before that, he was just given a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. Yeah. I yeah I don't know I don't know toughest but definitely a thorn in the side because they just they're so very unlike all of the other people and 
the Jew, Jews are everywhere in the Roman Empire. They, they by this time, have, have scattered, and so they're, they're kind of constant. They're not just in Jerusalem and Judea. Like, if it were so, you know, you could just deal with them. But, and commerce and travel, just like we're going to hear about Saul, you know, people travel around and they just, they, they're, they're everywhere. So, but yeah, they, they do seem to be targeted um, specifically several different times throughout history. Well, it seemed like it was important to Rome to keep the peace with that group, that particular group, unless it was just important to Rome to keep peace with everyone. Both of those are true, yeah. They, they always want to try to keep peace, um, but sometimes, you know, like I said, peace could be, okay, conceding a few things, and other times peace meant bringing the army and just take them all out. Um, and that's eventually where this is leading with the Jews. The Roman army is going to come in there and just destroy everything. But they're given a few decades to try to get in line. All right, we'll stop there. We will do Paul's first missionary journey. Uh, we'll see if we can cover it in one swoop next week. Probably not, but whatever. Thank you for listening to this Bible study. If you have questions or comments about something you've heard, let us know by leaving us a comment on our webpage, stpaulslutheran.net, and look for the menu About Us. Our Bible class meets Sunday mornings at 9.50 a.m. at 1780 Career Center Road, Bourbonnet, Illinois, 60914. We'd love to see you there. Come and grow together in Christ with us.